This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. So my name is Aziz Hop. Um, I've taught some of you, but for those of you who I haven't taught, uh, I teach on the public law side of the curricula curriculum here. So I teach the introductory constitutional law class. Uh, I taught earlier this year criminal procedure one uh, and federal habeas. Uh, in past years, I've taught uh, federal courts uh, and uh, the one elective class legislation. Um, and my uh, typical research uh, is about what you would call the structural constitution. So it's about the institutions that are established by the federal constitution, uh, the division of authority, for example, between the states and, and the national government, the division within the national government of uh, executive from legislative from judicial branches, and what the effects of those initial design decisions are on uh, outcomes that we might care about. So for example, I have a paper uh, on the effects of strong versions of judicial independence on the distribution of remedies in constitutional tort cases. Uh, Professor Ginsberg and I just did a conference last weekend on how to go about thinking uh, or evaluating the performance of new constitutions uh, in a, uh, 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 a transnational context, how to go about thinking uh, about what counts as success and failure in crafting institutions in a new uh, constitution. So that's the, that's the sort of work that I, I usually do. Um, and this is uh, atypical. The project that I'm, I'm going to talk about today is atypical for me. It's not something that is part of the, uh, uh, my dominant work. It's a little bit of a, uh, just something that struck me as interesting. And uh, I had collaborators to work with, and um, I decided to work on it. Um, and I thought that it would be worth doing as a Chicago's Best Ideas for three reasons. Um, the first reason is it's not boring. <laughs> so uh, Professor Casey and I have a paper on uh, the interaction between Article 3 and bankruptcy. So some of the law review people are like, oh, yeah, we know that thing. Um, as far as we can tell, uh, the paper is good, but we're unable to get any of our senior colleagues to tell us anything about it because it manages to combine the most boring part of private law and the most boring part of public law. <laughs> uh, Professor Baird, for example, will just say, well, he's read the paper, and he's like, oh, it's great. How? You want to tell us. <laughs> All right, so that's the first reason. Um, the second reason is the law school places a premium, and I think rightly so, on interdisciplinarity of various kinds, that is learning from uh, other fields. Um, and we were able to do that in part because we have people within the law school who are also trained in economics, also trained in history, also trained in philosophy. What we don't have is anyone who's trained in psychology, uh, social psychology in particular. And this is a paper that crosses, or this is a project that crosses the law psychology uh, boundary line. Um, so it's a, it's a taste of something interdisciplinary that you wouldn't otherwise get in the, the standard curriculum. And then the third reason is that the, the kind of social psychology that this paper or this project engages in is in some tension with the rational choice models that I think predominate in particular in the first year curriculum. Rational choice models are important and useful <coughs> primarily because they provide a parsimonious model, a parsimonious framework for analyzing interactions between individuals in the world. In many circumstances, that parsimonious model is sufficiently tractable and sufficiently predictively accurate as to be useful. Right? But it is a mistake to uh, take the map, which is the rational choice model, for the terrain, which is the, the human behavior that it encompasses. 
And it's useful at, uh, at, at times to revisit the terrain and, and to use different tools, different methodologies that pick out different features of human uh, behavior. Um, so those, I think, are the, the, the three reasons for, that this uh, topic might be of interest. Let me start talking about it by explaining how the project came about. Um, for a number of years, I've done a, uh, I've, I've collaborated with uh, a number of social psychologists at the London School of Economics and at Yale on uh, the social psychology of policing. Uh, in particular, what we've been interested in is how people respond to different styles or uh, 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 forms of police-citizen interaction and whether police-citizen interaction at T0 influences the way that people will behave, either with respect to the police or with respect to uh, uh, compliance with generally applicable laws at T1 or T2. Right? And we, the, the effort is to show in, in, in a series of papers uh, that are focused on, on data that's been gathered in the US, the UK, and in South Africa, how, what aspects of police behavior seem to count normatively for people and seem to influence their behavior down, downstream. Um, so, that, so there's, the, so that, so there's a, a, a conversation that I've been having with, with these colleagues for a number of years on these papers that's ongoing. Um, and we were talking one day um, uh, at a after a conference um, about random things, as one does with one's colleagues. Um, and the, the then not terribly old Citizens United versus FEC opinion came up. And this was also about the time that the Supreme Court had accepted certiorari in the Hobby Lobby v. Burwell case. And my colleagues, like uh, good academics, are dyed-in-the-wool liberals. Right? So they reflexively expressed Outrage at both of these opinions. How dare the Supreme Court uh, vest corporations with sacred First Amendment rights in Citizens United, right? And they anticipated something similar in Hobby Lobby. Now, because I'm a, a lawyer by training, which means that I have a deep proclivity toward being boring <laughs> and tendentious and nitpicking, this is what we try and train you to be. This is what you get out of your law school education. So my inclination is not to agree with them or to disagree, but to quibble over the details. So I say, oh, no, well, Citizens United, not really the first time that the, that the Supreme Court has recognized corporate rights. Actually, even in the First Amendment context, there's a 1978 decision called First National Bank of Boston versus Bellotti in which corporate expenditures are recognized as being protected by the First Amendment. You can go back even further than that to 1886 in a case called Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad Company, in which the court holds that uh, corporations are protected by uh, the first clause of the 14th Amendment. Right? In the case of Hobby Lobby v. Burwell, it wasn't clear uh, before the oral argument or the ruling uh, how the court would decide, but even then it was... It was it was fairly likely that the court would not, in fact, focus upon the First Amendment free, free exercise rights of corporations, but rather would decide the case under a federal statute called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, which, vests certain, which vests entities and persons with certain rights against federal laws that have the effect of burdening substantially the exercise of religion. Right? So I, I wanted to fight back against them. But as we had this discussion, we realized, we realized that, that, the, that the vast majority of our peer group shared their intuition, not mine. That is, they had the intuition that there was something untoward, unusual, and improper about the recognition of corporate constitutional rights. Right? This was something out of the ordinary. And that recognition that it was, or that perception that it was something out of the ordinary was somewhat at odds with the law, right? And you might go further and say it's somewhat at odds with the sense that many of us have that there are certain kinds of corporate entities, think of churches or newspapers, that might have a degree of constitutional protection 
that other uh, for-profit entities don't have. Okay? So we thought it would be interesting to, uh, to do two things. First, try and understand what in fact is the case about people's attitudes or people's beliefs about the rights-holding ability of corporate entities. That is, when and how do, uh, do individuals, do, do, do people believe that uh, uh, corporations have rights? And do people systematically have different beliefs about corporations as opposed to individuals? So that was the first thing that struck us as interesting. And then the second thing that struck us as interesting was, well, can the Supreme Court change that? Right? The Hobby Lobby opinion was a couple of months away. And we thought, um, this is an opportunity to look at whether the Supreme Court, by issuing a ruling, can influence what people believe about a, a question that is, in some sense, legal, but in another sense, is, is normative, right? It's, it's, a, it's a belief that's not uh, predicated on certain facts about the law or facts about the world. It's predicated on people's uh, uh, beliefs about what is right or proper in some fashion. So we started off with these uh, two uh, research questions and um, <coughs> thought that, uh, and set out to design an empirical research strategy that would cast light on them. Now, when an, um, an empiricist uh, goes about trying to answer a question, uh, and this is actually true of legal scholars, or it should be true of legal scholars, uh, the first thing you do is you go back and you, you look at what's already known. You look at what studies already exist out there in the world. Right? So that's what we did. Um, so we started with this question about what the public's beliefs about corporate rights uh, uh, comprise and looked into the literature on, on that. We didn't find very much. Perhaps the most interesting uh, finding that we, we identified uh, was this 2012 paper that looks at when and how people attribute entitivity, that is uh, personhood in some sense, to a collective entity. And uh, this is a paper by Waits and Young. Waits is at Northwestern uh, in, the, in their business school. And essentially what, what they try and do is they try and uh, create an array of different sorts of associations uh, which they say are, uh, which they, well, well, they array it over um, uh, along a scale here of increasing attributions of group mind and group responsibility and show that the more that um, people are inclined to identify an entity as having some sort of a group mind, the less they're inclined to, uh, uh, to attribute uh, uh, individual responsibility to the members of that group. Right? So uh, group attributions of group mind, attributions of uh, group responsibility uh, are negatively correlated with the tendency to see the individuals in the group uh, as being uh, responsible. That's not quite the question, though, that we wanted to answer. So we, we looked at the literature on criminal liability um, and whether or, or under what circumstances uh, juries, for example, perceive corporate entities as being amenable to criminal liability. Um, there's two findings. One of them, Mentovich is, the, is my co-author on, on, on both of these projects. Um, well, the, the thing that we found is that, is that perceptions that a, a corporation has some sort of a collective uh, mentality seem to make a difference to uh, juries' willingness to, or people's willingness to, uh, attribute moral responsibility and criminal culpability to that entity. Right? So this is, the, this is the previous research that I think is most salient. It doesn't directly answer the question, though, of under what circumstances do people attribute rights as opposed to uh, personality to a corporation. So um, how did we go about exploring that question? Right. That's the, that, those are the research questions that we started with. How did we go about answering that question? Well, we came up with three different rights. 
that we thought one could plausibly say belonged to an individual or a corporate entity. Uh, the two ones that were obvious to, to uh, experiment upon were religious liberty and free speech. Right? Religious liberty is the, is the subject of the Hobby Lobby opinion. Free speech is the object of the Citizens United opinion. The other uh, one that we, we, we thought might be interesting was privacy, um, in part because uh, there is an ongoing debate about the obligations or the, uh, uh, the ability of corporate entities that hold data that we might treat as private to disclose or not disclose that data to the government, right? So the idea here is that ISPs, uh, search providers, social messaging providers, uh, uh, email services have information about us that we might treat as private, right? Do they have privacy rights? In that data, do they are they are they somehow uh, are they somehow vested with a right as much as we are? Right? And the current doctrine, the answer to that is no. So we started off with three rights, um, and in order to tease out the reasons why people have different views or the reasons why people have views upon rights, what we needed to do was to give people give uh, our subjects because it's going to be an experiment. Uh, give our subjects an array of factual situations that vary ever so slightly uh, and thereby allow us to, to identify and then to tease out uh, differences in people's judgment about the allocation of rights to individuals versus corporations. And then from those differences, draw inferences about when and how uh, attributions of rights to corporate entities are, are made. Uh, that's not as, uh, as complicated as, as I just made it sound. But the basic idea is we came up with five hypothetical corporate entities. Right? Three of them are for-profit businesses, and two of them are uh, not-for-profit entities that, are, that have some sort of role that is specific to the, the right in question. So for example, for religious liberty, if I'm remembering this right, our two not-for-profit entities are uh, a a not-for-profit entity that's religious but that engages in, in social work uh, and a church, right? So we have five different entities. The, four, the three not-for-profit businesses basically change in, in size. We go from a mom-and-pop store to a regional store to a, uh, a, 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 a national uh, chain, right? So we have a variety of entities. And then within each entity, we have a variety of... Uh, potential holders of the right, right? So there's the company itself, which might hold the right. There's the owners of the company, right? And then there's the employees of the company, okay? And so um, by examining the extent to which subjects attribute rights across these different circumstances, we, we hope to tease out the reasons or the circumstances under which uh, rights are attributed. So what did we find? Uh, this just tells you a little bit about um, how we, about the, the sample that we obtained. We use something called Mechanical Turk that's provided by Amazon. Mechanical Turk is basically the research tool that you use when you have no money. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, it's not that bad, is the sort of best that can be said for, for um, You can engage in what social scientists call convenience sampling, which yields uh, something that is demographically diverse, but not necessarily representative of the general population, in order to get something that's, in effect, a national panel sample, which is uh, representative. You need a lot more money. We didn't have it. Um, or we'd spent it all on our policing studies. That was the problem. Um, but the, the sample that we have is, is demographically diverse and uh, is sufficiently large for us to make uh, findings with respect to, in particular, intra-person differences, right? Uh, the reasons or the circumstances in which a person takes a different view about A versus B. So let's, let me run through now. This, these are the, f the five things that we, the five entities that we tested on. Um, this is the question that we started with in the religious liberty context. I'll give you the, I'm going to give you the prompt for our religious liberty question and not for our privacy and our civil liberty, our free speech question, because it's basically the same prompt. So what we're asking uh, about is, web, is the person's opinion 
about the right to religious liberty. So notice a couple of things about this formulation. The first is that we don't say constitutional or statutory. We decided not to do that because we thought that it was, um, we did a couple of pretests, and we weren't sure that we were picking up on, on a meaningful difference by asking people whether they had different views about statutory and constitutional rights. We weren't sure, that is, that people actually perceive a difference. The second reason for asking about this is that we're, we're trying to tap into people's underlying normative views, not necessarily their views about what the law is. Um, hence, our, our use of the phrase, who is entitled to have it. Okay? Um, the third thing to point out, and it's, I think, a weakness of the study, but a, I think an inevitable one, is that we don't actually say what the right to religious liberty comprises of. Right? And as those of you who've, who've uh, taken uh, Con Law 5 or Con Law 4 know, there's a, a, a large debate about whether uh, religious liberty is a right against discriminatory actions on the part of the state, or whether it encompasses also a degree of rights to various kinds of accommodations from laws that have disparate burdens upon the religious as opposed to the non-religious, right? We just bracket that. We're, we're asking at a very, very high level of abstraction, which, which actually might be pretty much as far as you can go when you're asking members of the general public, right? It's not clear that we actually uh, get that much of interest by, by digging down any further than that. Okay. So what did we find? So this is, this is a very, very straightforward representation of a first, of, of a first part of our, uh, one part of our results. On the y-axis, we have a scale from 1 to 7. The, peop the respondents in the, in the, in the test, in the, in the experiment, were asked to rank how much they weighted uh, the possession of a right, how, how entitled a certain entity or a certain person under certain conditions was entitled to a right on that 1 to 7 scale. So you're just seeing... The scale that's represented on the y-axis is exactly the same scale that people were asked to rank, give their answers on. On the x-axis, you have a variety of different organizations, the five different organizations that I mentioned. And um, here on the, 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 the logo, we have um, distinguished the attributions to the company itself, the attributions to employees, and the attributions to um, owners. Okay. The thing to take away from this chart is the large gap between attributions to corporations, so, excuse me, attributions to the corporate entity and attributions to the individuals, right? Notice that the gap decreases uh, on, this, uh, on this side of the, of, the, of the chart where you have the not-for-profit entities. But notice also that the gap doesn't close, right? So, um, when you have a chart like this, what you do, or when you have data like this, what you do is you, you, you uh, slice up your results using the various demographic criteria that you have until you find something interesting. And then you claim that the interesting thing that you found was the thing that you were looking for all along. <laughs> this is, as far as I can tell, standard operating procedure among all empiricists. Don't let them fool you. Okay, so the, the, the slice that... Uh, we actually suspected that this was interesting, but I, you know, if I say that, it's totally unconvincing. Um, well, there's no reason you should believe me if I say that. Um, the slice that we found uh, as being pot uh, potentially interesting is, uh, the, is, is, is the distinction that we drew between liberals and conservatives. Basically, we asked people to rank themselves on a seven-point scale. Um, we tossed out a set of results in the middle, Right, people who plunked themselves right down in the middle of the scale. Um, and we took the people who ranked themselves as liberals and we took the people who ranked themselves as conservatives, right, i.e. away from the center, and treated them as separate samples and asked how do people, how do people, uh, how do people think about religious liberty interests. So the, the takeaway from this chart where you have the liberal and the conservative subpopulations split is that there's no real difference with respect to religious liberty attributions to individuals. But there is starting to be a difference in the, the shape of the, uh, of the curve for uh, corporate entities. 
the conservative subpopulation is more likely to make an attribution uh, of uh, rights to a corporate entity than the liberal subpopulation is. Right. So we dug a little further here, and we looked. Um, we we looked at what individual members of the liberal and the conservative subpopulations thought. This, this chart um, is a way of expressing the relationship between individual rights and corporate rights within uh, the liberal subpopulation and within the conservative subpopulation. And what it tells you is this. If you're a liberal and uh, you are inclined to, uh, uh, inclined to support, um, you're inclined toward a lower level of support for company rights, you're likely to uh, say that you highly support individual rights, right? By contrast, if you're, some, if you're a liberal who is highly supportive of company rights, and there were some in the sample, right, you're likely to be less supportive of individual rights, and vice versa for conservatives. If you're a conservative who expresses low support for company rights, you're likely to express low support for individual rights. If you're a conservative who expresses high support for co company rights, you're likely also to express a high level of support for individual rights. Okay? I'll get to what this tells us um, in a second. Um, but let me first rush really quickly through the slides for privacy and for free speech. Right, this is, remember, this, was the, uh, this is an identical chart to the one I started with for the uh, Freedom of Religion study. It shows roughly the same thing, a big gap between individual and uh, corporate attributions of rights. Again, we see a difference between liberal and conservative attributions. Conservatives are much more likely to uh, make an attribution of corporate rights. The difference, by the way, in both this and the earlier chart and the next chart is, significant, is statistically significant. Um, again, you have this uh, different set of dynamics distinct set of dynamics within liberals and within conservatives for privacy. What about free speech? The gap between individual and corporate rights with respect to speech is smaller than the gap with respect to the other two rights. Um, but again, uh, I've skipped the middle uh, uh, chart here. Again, you have the same kind of trade-off. So what do, we, what do we learn? What do we learn from this? Um, kind of the naive uh, takeaway is that there are significant differences in, in, the, in the extent of attributions of rights to individuals as opposed to corporate entities. Um, I think what surprised us was that the differences are, or what surprised my colleagues, were that the differences are as small as they are. Right? Um, people, very, very roughly speaking, in the religious liberty context, are likely to make attributions uh, of, corporate, uh, of corporate rights at about half the strength that they are of individual rights. Right? I think that my colleagues would have said ex ante, uh, what we'll see is a ratio of one to five or one to six between those two attributions. Right? It's not what we see. Right? Um, we see a dimming of the effect for not-for-profit entities. Right? Not-for-profit entities are perceived off as different from for-profit entities. Right? This reflects, or it, 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 I don't think it reflects, it echoes, I'm sorry. It echoes a distinction that is made in two lines of First Amendment jurisprudence. So we see a distinction between uh, for-profit and not-for-profit companies in the campaign finance context. There's a, uh, there's a series of cases, earlier cases where the court uh, has drawn that distinction. Not, not, not clear it matters as much now, but it doesn't seem nice Right? Uh, it also echoes the scope of the holding in Hobby Lobby. Right? Hobby Lobby turned out to be a statutory opinion, um, but it, it was a statutory opinion that was written about, or, or it focused upon, closely held corporations and expressly reserved the question of publicly held corporations. 
Uh, it's not quite the line that we see here, but it's a line, right? And it's not that far away from it. Um, the ideological uh, uh, differences, I think, are more interesting. So although you have the same pattern of viewing individual interests as more uh, weighty as corporate than corporate interests among both liberals and conservatives, the fundamental dynamics of those attributions are different among the two groups. Um, it's not just that there is greater support among conservatives for corporate rights. It's that the nature of the support is different. On the one hand, liberals see a trade-off between corporate and individual liberties. That's what that downward slope of the line means. On the other hand, conservatives see a complementarity between individual and corporate rights. Now, in, in the paper that we, we wrote up, we, we leave that there. We don't try and explain it because it's a, a paper for a peer-reviewed journal and you're, uh, it, it is incumbent upon you in, a, in most peer-reviewed contexts, at least in the, the hard or the social science context, to say nothing more than your data will allow. And that, I think, is pretty much what our data will allow us to say. Um, you know, if you press me to offer a law professor's hokey interpretation of this, like a grandly theorized interpretation of this, I think I can come up with one, right? I don't know whether it's right, uh, but it would run something along these lines. Um, conservatives have a view of, of rights that flows back to uh, 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 thinkers like de Tocqueville and Montesquieu. Both uh, uh, de Tocqueville and Montesquieu saw the achievement of, of even individual rights as being contingent upon the existence of intermediating entities that buffer the individual in relation to the state. Right? So uh, de Tocqueville talks about... Um, uh, the plethora of civic associations that he sees in the United States. Uh, Montesquieu, um, in a very different, in the very different context of 18th century France, pre-revolution, uh, looks to the judiciary and to what were then called the Parlement, which were um, meet it, local meetings of nobles, as playing that intermediating role. On the other hand, um, liberals have a much darker view of associations. Um, you might trace this view of associations back to uh, uh, thinkers like Hobbes. Right? Hobbes was deeply skeptical of uh, the role of the predominant institution in his uh, uh, in, in 17th century England in which he wrote uh, churches. Right? He, he, um, the reason that Leviathan uh, is almost put on the list of heretical publications is that Hobbes suggests that um, churches are um, uh, unnecessary, right? The state can get rid of them, right? Um, more beyond Hobbes, there is a robust liberal tradition, and, I, and Hobbes' status as a liberal is something that is, um, I think, a little contentious. But beyond Hobbes, there is a, a vigorous liberal tradition that views intermediating groups, and in particular religious groups, as source of constraints or restrictions upon rights as opposed to mechanisms for the realization of rights. Right? So liberals are skeptical of intermediating groups, corporate entities. Conservatives see them as necessary to the attainment of rights. So can the court change this? Right? So in, and I'll try and do the rest of this in about 10 minutes. Um, so we were interested not just in what people believed about rights, and corporate rights. We were also interested in whether uh, the court, right, the Supreme Court, uh, had the ability to move people. Um, and it seemed to us that we had a, an opportunity to, to examine that because of the Hobby Lobby decision that was then uh, forthcoming. That, that slide just summarizes what I just said. Um, so this is the basic question that we, we started with. Um, and our, our basic empirical strategy was to go back to the people we asked about uh, religious liberty of corporations um, and, and uh, re-question them after the Hobby Lobby decision had come down, had been um, uh, 
uh, had been handed down. And then to, and to look not just at their attitudes to religious liberty and corporate religious liberty in particular, but also to look at their attitudes to the court, right? If it turned out that you disagreed, that is, with the outcome of Hobby Lobby, did that change the way you thought about the court? So we did that uh, 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 second panel of the study uh, about a week, a week and a half after the Hobby Lobby decision was, was handed down. Um, you know, again, we started out by looking at the literature and uh, looking at whether there were theories out there of how or whether the Supreme Court uh, influences people's opinions about rights or people's judgments about rights. Um, in contrast to the, the first part of what I've been talking about, there's an enormous literature here. Um, and it splits into three camps, right? Um, the first camp we, it, we can be called the constrained court camp. And this is a, a body of literature going back to Marshall, who, we, this is a 1989 publication, but he'd been writing for a, a decade or two before that, um, who basically say that the court is ineffectual as a lever for changing public opinion on an issue, right? And so people who take this position, uh, and Jerry uh, Rosenberg here at the law school takes this position, although not on the basis of larger and quantitative studies, will look at, uh, uh, at patterns of events like the aftermath of Brown v. Board of Education, the aftermath of the court's school prayer opinions in the 1950s, and say, well, look, if you actually look at when the court tries to do something that's unpopular, pretty much nobody listens to it. Uh, and there's some, there's, there's both field, field experiments and lab experiments that suggest that, that give support for this. Okay. The second uh, theory of the court, you, you can call it the legitimating court. And the premise here is, is that the court stands upon a, think of, it, think of it as a reservoir of goodwill, right? The court is invested with, people have all these warm feelings for the court. They view it as being a legitimate part of government and a legitimate uh, actor on the national stage. And the, the, the best theory of, of, of this uh, uh, legitim legitimate court uh, is associated with, with this chap, Gibson, and his frequent co-writer, Caldera. They say one version of their theory is, look, the court is a body that tends to act in certain legalistic, uh, protocol-filled ways. And, it, and it's those rituals of legality that people look at and they think, oh, this is, this is a, a, a body that acts carefully, that acts deliberately, and that acts in a way that is fair and transparent. Right? And they look at Congress and they see a bunch of lunatics. Right? <laughs> Hence, the court has a, a measure of institutional legitimacy, right? say, people like Gibson and Caldera, that other national actors uh, don't. Right? Those are, I think, the two main theories of, what the, of, of the role of the court in... Uh, altering or not altering public opinion. There is a third, right, which, as you'll see, we found interesting. Um, and this is the idea that, that the effect of a ruling from the court depends upon the political ideology of the person receiving that ruling, right? And um, there's, there's some evidence of this with respect to Bush v. Gore. Obviously, Bush v. Gore is not a typical case. Um, and there's also an a series of articles by Franklin and Kosaki that criticize both the constrained court and the legitimating court literature on the ground that, hey, you guys have been looking at the population as a whole, and you haven't tried to slice up the population. And unless you slice up the population, you have no way of knowing whether what you see as null effects is actually big effects, but cross-cutting in different parts of the population. Right? So they, they, they point that out as a theoretical matter, and they have some evidence of it. Um, but not terribly strong evidence. Okay, so let me briefly say what the results here are. So these charts by now should look familiar, right? That's our before Hobby Lobby attributions of individual and um, uh, group rights, uh, corporate rights. And this is the same people, right? it's the same individuals, right? Before and after, after, the, after the Hobby Lobby decision. Right. Hobby Lobby, recall, only concerned corporate rights, didn't concern uh, individual rights, right? and, it, and it, it was about a, a family-owned corporation. Right? Um, so we, you know, we, when you do empirical work, you, you spend a lot of time 
in gathering the data, and then you run your first analysis, and when your first analysis looks like this, your tendency is to swear. Why? It's a null result. That's boring. Who cares? Okay, so we had a null result at that point, and so we dug a little deeper, again, using ideology. Um, well, this, oh, by the way, this is, the, this is the, the before and after line for corporations. And you can see that there's a, there is a bit of a change here before and after, where there's a dip for the publicly traded big, big corporation, right? Which is actually larger than the dip for the family-owned corporation. Right? I, it's not clear that that's all that telling, although it is statistically significant. Um, now, here's where it gets actually a bit more interesting. So again, we sorted the data by ideology. And we looked at how our, the liberal subpopulation and the conservative subpopulation uh, uh, behaved, or how they, how, they, how, how they responded to Hobby Lobby. So the blue lines are liberals, the red lines are conservatives. Right? The, the striking thing here is, is uh, so, so conservatives have a little bit of an upshift. That is, after Hobby Lobby, they become a bit more supportive of uh, of corporate religious liberty, although not, interestingly, for the publicly traded uh, big corporation. But wow, look at liberals, right? The bottom falls out of their love, <laughs> as Dean Schill would say. Um, this is another way of uh, making the same uh, point, right? This is, this is just the result for the closely held corporation, right? The, the entity like the Hobby Lobby store itself, right? And this is a, it's just a simple before-after snapshot. And you can see liberals uh, become, on a seven-point scale, moving from uh, four to three is, is pretty significant. So they become substantially more antipathetical to the, to the uh, recognition of corporate religious liberty rights for the, for the entity at stake in Hobby Lobby, whereas conservatives seem to update uh, positively uh, on that right. Um, we then did a, a series of tests of, of whether the, the perception of the, of the court had changed as a consequence of Hobby Lobby. Right? Here, here's our population level results. Again, nothing interesting. Right? Don't, you don't see anything. But again, when you disaggregate the data by ideology, you start to see the same kind of interesting uh, patterns. You start to see uh, conservatives uh, feeling a stronger obligate, felt obligation to obey the court. Right? Liberals see, that, that seems to weaken. Uh, liberals seem to trust the court less. Liberals approve of the court less. Right? Um, they, they're more likely to perceive bias on the part of the court. Um, and then this is a measure of institutional legitimacy, which remember is the the Gibson Caldera idea of, a, of this kind of background pool of goodwill toward an institution, that, interestingly, doesn't seem to change. So what do we learn uh, from this? Um, one takeaway is that the, the obvious takeaway is that the effect of a Supreme Court ruling is contingent upon your ideology, right? Um, it, that is, it's not the case that people are passive recipients of dicta from on high by the court. The court is not, by any stretch of the imagination, this data suggests, the last word on constitutional or legal questions. Rather, if you're inclined to agree with the court ex ante, as we know liberals and as we know conservatives were, right? Uh, pre-Hobby Lobby, uh, you are likely to uh, uh, feel confirmed, feel justified by the court's ruling. So you're, more like, you're likely to hold that same normative view, but more deeply. Right? On the other side of the ledger, and, that's, and I think it's the other side of the ledger, which is almost the more interesting side, um, if the Supreme Court hands down a ruling that you don't agree with. You are not more likely to say, well, you know, I know what I know, but I can engage in Bayesian updating based upon what I've learned from these nine wise men and women. Oh, no. 
You're more likely to view the court as less, less trustworthy, less worthy of uh, obligation, of felt obligation uh, of obedience, um, more political in some sense. And you're likely to double down on whatever view it was that you initially held. So um, let me end with this question. At least in my experience, and maybe this is just the, a selection effect um, uh, from the classes I teach, um, I, I, I never hear that much opposition in, from, from students to uh, the recognition of gay marriage, right? the legal recognition of gay marriage under the Equal Protection uh, Clause. Right? So I'm, I'm just going to assume for the purposes of making this point that that's the case, although I could do it the other way around just as easily. So let's say you were a supporter of, of the extension of uh, marriage equality. And let's say that you, you were convinced by these results, right? What does that make you think about the, the future of uh, gay marriage after uh, the Supreme Court issues its ruling in, uh, on the Sixth Circuit case in July, right? One thing you might think is that, is that um, on the one hand, yes, that there will be much uh, there will be much acceptance of gay marriage, and probably legal acceptance of it, um, in many parts of the country. But on the other hand, you might be concerned that um, the, the basic normative sentiments that drive opposition to gay marriage right, will, in those parts of the country where, the, where those such sentiments are deeply held, held, be even more deeply held in the future. And that might give you cause for concern. Right? So I'm happy to take your questions. We'll talk about the results. Or not. <laughs> if you had to hypothesize, would you think that the polarizing court effect would stay the same longer term? As in, do you think that people's um, held beliefs yeah. would remain as polarized? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, and I, I don't think so because uh, there's somebody who studied this. Uh, so I, I'm just relying upon their data. Um, it's a chap called Joshua. I think it's Ura, U-R-A. And he, he uses national level uh, panels, so big national public opinion surveys that are both conducted by the federal government and a number of, of public and educational <laughs> institutions uh, uh, for the purposes of, of both uh, academic study but also political polling. Um, he looks at those, po th those, those, those data points over time and looks at what, how the court has changed public opinion on issues. And um, he finds that, that basically what happens is that, is that his claim is that the court will, will say something. There'll be a backlash. right? They'll, so he actually, he's picking up on... Um, he picks up on his data, in his data, on, on this effect, right? Well, he finds that this effect is predominant in the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court opinion. But he finds that the backlash fades over time, and that over time people begin to view whatever the court has done as being legitimate, right? So you can tell a story of this kind about Roe v. Wade, right? Where Roe v. Wade catalyzes, or it, there's an academic debate about whether it, it, it catalyzes or, or merely accelerates a process of organization and resistance to the recognition of abortion rights, right? Um, Aura's data would suggest that, um, yeah, you're going to see this sort of immediate groundswell of opposition. But over time, um, and I think this, I mean, this is my phrase, not his, Roe becomes part of the furniture, right? It becomes routinized. It becomes something that law students are not surprised by because they kind of vaguely heard about it when they were eighth graders, right? And that routinization, that becoming part of the background, dampens the backlash effect that he finds, right? So I, that, I think that finding is his, his methodology seems to be robust. And the finding seems to be plausible and it's consistent with what we find, although you know, I'm, I'm open to to being told that our findings are idiosyncratic or wrong, right? Um, but I think I mean, that, I th that strikes me as being a plausible account of at least in the, 
the majority of cases, the, uh, the long-run effects of Supreme Court opinion. Does that respond? Yes. Okay. More than you wanted, I think. Sorry. That's perfect. Thank you. You mentioned when um, you're giving your grand theorizing that you think that this can be attributed to how liberals and conservatives, um, their ideological backgrounds and things like that. But do you think that maybe if you control for religious belief, um, that your conclusions might change? Because it seems to me, obviously, I don't have empirical data to that yeah, stuff, but my yeah. religious liberal yeah. friends viewed yeah. the lobby much more favorably than my non-religious yeah. liberal friends. So um, a couple of things to say about that. I, so the first thing to say is that we did actually, we, we tried to slice the data by religiosity. We didn't really find anything. Okay. Um, or we didn't find anything that we didn't find with uh, ideology, right? And an ideology seemed to be a better uh, predictor than religiosity. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that remember that the effects that we're finding are not just about religious liberty, right? They're about privacy and about uh, um, And so you, you, you wouldn't expect uh, the same patterns to emerge with respect to privacy and free speech if that was the explanation that, uh, of, of the underlying phenomenon. Um, and, and, and finally, I should walk away from my own claim. Um, so I don't, to say that um, you know, a theory of uh, rights drives people's opinions is, is to make a pretty ambitious claim about the effect of uh, theories on behavior and beliefs in the world. <laughs> And I, I, I tend to think that, that theories do have an effect upon uh, beliefs and behavior, right? I, the, the, the theories about when and how the state is legitimate clearly affect, uh, for example, the conditions under which people are willing to resort to force against the state. I think that's, that's plainly true. Um, I, I think that, um, th well, I, I think there are many other instances in which in which, in which theory informs action or theory informs belief. But the way that that happens, I think, is, is deeply mysterious and not especially <coughs> mechanical or rational. So um, John Maynard Keynes has this famous, uh, um, I mean, it's a famous quote. I don't, I don't think it comes, um, I don't know actually know where it comes from. That, but the quote is that, that the, the actions of today's politicians are animated by the, the ghosts of yesterday's economists, right? And so take away the economists there and, and put in philosophers or thinkers, and I think there's something to be said for that. But I don't think anyone has a great sense about when and how ideas enter into currency, become embedded, and then play out in terms of reflexive and unconscious expressions of norms, right? That seems to me a really, really hard question. And to say that it was, and I certainly don't mean to say, you know, it was Montesquieu that did this. I mean, you know, ask a random sample of the American public who Montesquieu is. And, yeah, good luck with that one. Um, yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't mean to suggest that it's some sort of naive mechanical effect of theory. Um, it's an interpretation, right? Maybe that's a better way to put it. So we, we, we tried to take out, so we did splice, we did cut it by gender, we did look at whether gender was an explanatory factor, we didn't find anything. Um, I, as, if I recall the way that we worded, so we, when, we gave, when we gave the second round panel study, um, we, we were very careful about writing a description of what Hobby Lobby held in a way that completely left out the contraception question. Right? And, and the reason that we did that, or the, sort of the, the question about access to contraception, its disparate impact, and whether there was either a statutory or a constitutional gender aspect to that disparate impact. Right? The reason that we did that is that it's precisely to avoid the concern that you're alluding to, that perhaps what we're picking up on is a, is some, is a, a set of beliefs or updating that are driven by men's and women's differential uh, expectations about how denial of access to contraception will affect them, right? So we tried to write the question in a way that was neutral of contraception, of the reference to contraception, 
but it's surely the case that we were not, we didn't, you know, we used Mechanical Turk. We didn't go out and stop people reading the newspaper, right? So I, I assume that people read the newspaper, or I assume that they watch, you know, Fox TV or whatever it is. Um, um, actually, we're, we're, we're planning to do a study, a follow-up study of basically the same design around the gay marriage case. And one of the things that we will do is we will ask people what media they saw. Um, we're, we're not just, we'll ask people whether they've heard of the opinion already, which I'm sure in the gay marriage case we'll get. Even, even the American public will have heard of that. <laughs> um, but we'll also ask them what media they heard it on. So I assume that if you hear about a case like Hobby Lobby, uh, you're going to hear a different account of Hobby Lobby on Fox versus MSNBC, and contraception might play a role in one, not the other, right? And so maybe that's a way of getting at your question. Is that a fair? Um, so I'm not sure if this is an issue, but is it possible that the study captures, rather than the effect of the courts holding in the case, just the fact that the um, the attention the Hobby Lobby case got raised the salience of some of the bad parts of corporate religious liberty in the eyes of liberals. Yeah, so 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 I think that's I I, I think I just want to concede that, and and the way that I would the way that I would reframe it is is look what we're testing is we're taking a we have a slice of time. Right, where we have a few weeks before Hobby Lobby and a few weeks after Hobby Lobby. And we're looking at what, if we're, at, what we're actually testing is the effect of the, the elapse of that time. Okay? And we don't have the tools to disaggregate what in that time period <laughs> is changing people's views. Now, um, you know, I, I, I think you can say a couple of things about what that might be. It, it might be the opinion itself Right, so, so I think the claim there would be somewhat mysterious. By dint of making something the law, right, people's opinions, people's judgments change. Right? So this is a, a theory that ties morality closely to actually the content of the law. Right? Um, so that's one, one theory of what might be going on. The other theory is you know, it, this, the, an opinion from the Supreme Court is accompanied by this bubble of commentary that uh, brings to salience different aspects of a right's consequences. And this goes back to Lauren's question, right? So recognition of a, um, uh, a corporate religious liberty interest, it's literally going to mean different things to different people. Right? And remember, remember the initial framing of, of the question and my point, my caveat about you know, we said right to religious liberty, but we didn't give them any more, didn't give respondents any more details, right? So when people hear the phrase right to religious liberty, they actually he they hear, they perceive, they anticipate different things. So some people will perceive, well, that this means that for certain employees, you're not going to get access to, you know, medicines that in the eyes of some people, there's a, a moral or a legal obligation to get access to those, med to those medications, right? Other people will, see, will, will perceive, well, there's, will pick up on the conscience aspects. Somebody who will be forced to compromise their deepest hell principles is no longer being asked to do that, right? Now, I think that's right, but I don't know if it matters. In the sense, if what, if what we're asking about is, is what happens when the Supreme Court touches an issue, right? Um, how do people's opinions change? Well, I, I, fine. We're, we're, what, we're, what we're picking up on or what we're measuring is the, is the aggregate effect of the court's intervention wrapped up with whatever beliefs or uh, prejudices are generated through the bubble of attention in the, in the media to it? That's fine. That's fine. I, I, I think if that's, in a sense, that, that may be what, what's interesting. And there are other studies which try and disaggregate the effect of media versus the effect of the, the opinion itself. Although I have to say, I find mysterious the idea that that knowing what the law is is going to change your normative views about something. Right? I, 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 it is, I guess, not my experience that when you tell somebody who is pro-choice that um, you know, abortion is unlawful in X number of countries, they care, right? and vice versa. Well, you mentioned the point about people making a Beijing update because the nine people yeah. know, know a little better. Than I was trying to be glib and ironic. <laughs> I'll have a little sign next time. <laughs> Ben, did you have a question? Yeah. Um, 
I guess so you presented them with uh, some sort of description of Hobby Lobby at the second time around the second time around. Yeah. Uh, so is it possible that the results are sort of overstated because the case you like just put it in their memory uh, immediately before they go and take this survey? Um, yes, although probably the kind of prompting effect that you're describing is inevitable given that, given that they've done a survey about Hobby Lobby. They've done a survey about religious liberty like three weeks beforehand. Did you mention Hobby Lobby the first we time? Didn't, we didn't, but we talked about religious liberty, yeah. right? Um, and then we're doing another survey about religious liberty. I, there's all sorts of uh, uh, priming effects, which is the phrase that the, in, in the psychology that sure is used, uh, that, are, that, are, that I think are going on. It's hard to see how we would, I mean, if we could somehow sneakily do it, right, if we could actually design it in a way where we were really asking them about religious liberty, but it seemed that, for example, we were asking them about NASCAR, <laughs> right, that would, be, that would get at your problem. Right. Well, I guess my question. I'm, I just am not smart enough. I guess my question is, why do you need yeah. the uh, the like description of the case the second time around? Why can't we just rely? Why can't you just rely on uh, like the number of people who do know about the case? Yeah. So I guess what we wanted to do was we wanted to so we wanted to know that people had were aware of the case, right? Not just that people were giving slightly slightly randomly different answers at different points in time. Right, so we asked them, do you, do you know of this case? We gave a brief description. And then we actually used that as our attention check. So we then asked them a question based upon the description that we'd just given them. So we were, we were certain that the benefit from that is, A, we're certain that we have people who are paying attention, which is persistently a problem in Mechanical Turk. And B, we were certain that, that we had people who were actually focused upon the thing that we thought that they were focused upon. And I think that the cost of doing that so the, the, the benefit from doing that is that we're, 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 we can be a little bit more certain that when we ask about a topic, we and the, and the people being questioned are thinking of the same thing, right? But the cost of it is precisely what you, what you say, that we're priming subjects in a way that might have a distorting effect. I'm not, I, I guess I, I don't see a priori a reason to be deeply concerned about the priming effect, though. So I, I, I take your point, but I, I think it's just an inevitable part of the experimental design. So should I? Uh, you have a little more today because we have five minutes. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Um, so I'm curious about the Yeah. As we see sort of more companies, especially for profit companies that are sort of adopting more of a corporate social responsibility framework or incorporating these sorts of sort of non profit ish goals as besides their shareholders. Yeah, and so this is related to the development in Delaware corporate law of uh, a, 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 I think it's, I don't remember the name of it, it's the D Corp. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Does somebody, does somebody know the name of this? That Delaware has recently introduced the form of the corporation, or the, a, a, a variant on the corporate form, where profit maximization does not need to be the sole goal, right? Um, and a company like Tom's, which you know makes shoes, but also gives shoes to you know shoeless kids in Ecuador or something, um, uh, is able to say, I, I, you know, I buy my kid Tom's shoes. It's, it's a plus, not a negative. Um, Although it might be a negative if they're crowding out, but never mind. Um, <laughs> see, there's the, there's the, the legal parent. Um, uh, it, it may well be the case that one source of changing attitude toward corporate rights is the increasing prevalence and frequency of corporations, of corporate entities, that expressly state that they have a diversity of interests, right? And um, I think what you're, one way of taking your question is that uh, uh, one dimension along which that might occur is the corporate religious liberty uh, dimension, which I take it most people would, would uh, give a, a, would, would attribute a conservative vector to, right? But the other vector might be, as my Tom's example suggested, a liberal vector, right? And so then the question is, well, well what effect does that uh, changing social practice which is contingent upon a background legal change, right, um, have upon people's beliefs about a normative question, right? It's got to be the case that at some level people's normative views are, are contingent upon, are somewhat the product of 
the social action, the field of social action that they perceive. I think that has to be right. Um, but the nature or the direction or the magnitude of the effect seems to me that I, you know, I, I don't know off the top of my head. It's an empirical question. To, to borrow the answer that my colleagues on these papers give to every second question. It's an empirical question. Didn't test that. Okay, well, thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.